Today on Heart and Mind, we begin with a study of the parables, those enigmatic short stories Jesus told to his followers. As you probably know, the church down through the ages has loved these stories, the Good Samaritan, the Prodigal Son, so many others. But while they are much beloved, many of them have left people scratching their heads trying to make sense of them. Turns out, that's how parables are supposed to work. So let's get started, and don't forget to stay tuned at the end for another Ask a Scholar question that was submitted. In the Gospel of Mark, just after Jesus tells a bunch of parables, Mark writes this, With many such parables he spoke the word to them as they were, as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them except in parables, but he explained everything in private to his disciples. <laughs> that, to me, raises a lot of questions. Like the little phrase, as they were able to hear it. What does that mean? Does that mean as long as they were able to stay awake? Or as long as they were able to catch on to what he was trying to say? What, what does that even mean? Turns out parables come in a kind of shroud of mystery, and even Mark's comment about it. He even has that little phrase um, that in private to his disciples he explained everything. Well, that's great, but we weren't there, aren't we disciples? So how do we get the interpretation? As for Mark's little phrase, he did not speak to them except in parables. Well, most scholars consider that an exaggeration, that Jesus speaks in parables about a third of the time. So it's not the only way. But if you were to take the roughly 40 parables that we have, and take any one of them at random, one that you love, one that's always troubled you, and someone were to ask you, so what do you think that parable means? That would be one question. But I think the more interesting question might be, how does one decide the meaning of any one parable? How do we make sense of parables? That's what we're going to talk about. Let me get started by sharing a little bit about another parable teller, by the name of Soren Kierkegaard. Soren Kierkegaard was a Danish philosopher and theologian, and Denmark at the time was considered itself a kind of Christian nation, much like the U.S. has at different times. Well, Kierkegaard's trouble was, how do you communicate gospel to people who think they already know gospel? So he had this famous line that uh, Fred Craddock and others latched onto. Here's the quote. Kierkegaard says, There is no lack of information in a Christian land. Something else is lacking, and this is something which the one cannot directly communicate to the other. In other words, if you live in a so-called Christian land, everybody knows everything, or at least they think they do. So if the something else that is lacking can't be communicated directly because, well, they assume they already know it, then how do we communicate? Well, Kierkegaard did what Jesus did. He used parables. For instance, one of the parables that he tells, and some of them are hilarious, this one's not quite so funny. I've nicknamed it the parable of the king's decree. So there was a king who issued a decree that all of the people in his land must follow this new decree. We're not given the details, so we just can imagine a decree. Hear ye, hear ye, the king declares, blah, 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 whatever it is. But as the parable unfolds, it turns out that rather than following or um, complying with the edict, people began to 
kind of try and figure it out. They became interpreters of the decree. I, I think what the edict means is this, and someone else says, no, no, no. I think what the edict means is this. And, and pretty soon they all became interpreters of the decree, but no one followed it. And the moral was that the king could forgive anything except becoming interpreters of the decree and not following it. Well, Kierkegaard then goes on to ask this question. What is the difference between criticism of a text and radical accountability to it? I think if we talk about the parables, I don't think we need to distinguish between the act of interpreting and following their teaching. In fact, I think there is a lesson for us in thinking about how, what they mean. So I want us to explore two things. What do the parables mean, different ones, but also the larger question. Why does Jesus speak in parables? To get at that, I want to remind us of something that I've said before in different classes and podcasts. And it, that simply is this. One of the biggest failures of Christian education regarding the Bible is the failure to note the diversity of the collection. 66 books in the Bible. I almost wish we didn't call it the Bible. We wouldn't ever say, so what does the library say? Because we know the library doesn't say anything, or maybe more accurately, the library says lots of things because it has lots of things in its collection. Well, the Bible is a collection. So it has different authors who have different theologies, and it has different historical contexts. What's often kind of overlooked, though, is that it also has different genres, different kinds of literature. The Psalms are not the same as the letters of Paul in terms of their literary form. The book of Genesis is totally different in its form from the book of Revelation at the end. The Gospels are one of those kinds of literary forms, but more specifically underneath that or within those is a parable. And so I want to kind of give us a refresher about parables. Now, I say it's a refresher. For some people, this may be brand new information. For others, you, you might say, oh, yeah, yeah, I knew that. So first, parable is a Greek word you actually know, because it turns out parable is a Greek word. It's one of those words that the translators didn't bother to translate into English. They just made the Greek letters into an English word. The Greek word parabole means to cast alongside. The idea is that I'm going to tell you something about God, and alongside the notion of God, I'm going to put this man who had two sons, or this fellow that was traveling down the road and was jumped by thieves. That's what a parable is. It's a kind of comparison. It's the word itself, the Greek word, is used to translate the Hebrew word, mashal, which in the Old Testament could be really a pretty elastic term, but for our sake we'll say it could be a riddle, or it could be a proverb, or it could be a saying, something like that. So when the Greek got around to saying, because there are parables in the Old Testament, not, not a lot, but, but some, when they got around to translating that word, they used parable A. And for the most part, the parables of Jesus are riddles. 
that kind of goes against the grain because a lot of us may have grown up hearing that they were simple stories that Jesus told so that everybody could understand. In truth, they're the opposite. They're riddles, and you have to work at it. We'll talk more about why riddles. Uh, parables have what scholars call two, two parts, a vehicle and a tenor. The vehicle would be the picture painted or the story that's told. Uh, a woman baking bread, that's the vehicle. But the tenor, T-E-N-O-R, would be the message. And that we don't have. We, have, we know it's about God, and we know that the vehicle used is this woman baking bread, but the message itself we don't get. We have to figure it out. Next, they're not really unique to Jesus, although that's somewhat debated. There clearly were lots of parables by rabbis in the couple hundred years that followed the time of Jesus, and there were some parables, riddles in the Old Testament, but not a lot. Some people say he invented the genre of parable. Others say, no, they were around. We do know that it, it's a rather unique uh, genre or kind of literature for the time. They're typically fo focused on the kingdom of God. That's the phrase. It comes from the Greek basileia to theu, the kingdom of God. Some have preferred to use the term the reign of God in order to get away from masculine language, the kingdom. Uh, and some have even, uh, personally, I, I like the God movement. You want to know what the God movement's like? Well, it's like this woman baking bread. Um, by the way, Matthew's gospel, instead of saying the kingdom of God, will say the kingdom of heaven. He doesn't do that to say something about heaven, so like when you die and go to heaven. It's his way of honoring uh, Jewish tradition of not using the name of God. But all of the parables are about the movement of God. Next, they were collected and arranged by the first three evangelists. In other words, the Gospel of John doesn't have parables per se. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that's where the parables are. But I bring that up to, to point out that, so Jesus, when he was here on earth, he told parables. He told one on a Tuesday, he told one on a Thursday, he told one on a Saturday, for all we know. But 40, 50, 60 years later, when the gospel writers get around to writing them, they collected them and they arranged them in a pattern that would fit their telling of the story. So they weren't there, they just had oral tradition, and they arranged them. So that's important to remember. Uh, most of the parables, they vary in length. Some are long, some are short, some are very detailed, some not so much. And as I mentioned earlier, there's about 40 of them. And then, interestingly, some of them come with interpretive clues, what in Hebrew is called a nimshal. It's just another word of saying a clue. So, for instance, here's a parable from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18. But before you hear the parable, Okay, this is the parable of two men going up to pray in the temple. Before it, Luke says, Then Jesus told them a parable about their need to pray always and not to lose heart. Well, he gave it away. Nobody tells a punchline to a joke before the joke, or the answer to a riddle before the riddle. Most scholars, by the way, think that these nimshals, these clues, uh, or nimshalim in, in Hebrew, that they're probably more the gospel writers than Jesus. We don't know. There's a lot of things about the parables that I'll 
say over and over again, I'll go, we don't know. If you want to understand parables, you kind of have to put them in historical perspective. So here is the briefest history of parables ever. And it really revolves around a German scholar by the name of Adolf Hulicker. So one way of dividing it is to say there was pre-Hulicker, Hulicker, and post-Hulicker. Very profound, right? So let me just start with Hulicker. Hulicker in the early 1900s said, parables, they have a lot going on, but there's one point of comparison. See, prior to this, in the pre-Hulicker days, which was really for 1900 years, the early church fathers and the interpreters who came along after them, they were pretty fond of allegory. That's where every little detail stands for something. St. Augustine famously said that the inn in the parable of the Good Samaritan is the church, and the coins represent this, and the oil represents that, and the bandages represent this, and the donkey represents this. Well, it's profound, but he made it up. There's nothing in the parable to indicate that. But because, we'll see, because the Gospels do that sometimes, that became a pattern for 1,900 years until Euliker said, no, 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 don't try and find hidden meaning. Look for one point of comparison. Since Euliker, really in the more recent century, um, most scholars have said, mm, you know, Euliker is right that, to reject allegory, but parables can mean more than one thing. Multiple points are possible. So we'll wrestle with that as we go along. If you ask yourself the deeper question, why does Jesus speak in parables? That's a really tough one. There's a literary scholar by the name of Frank Kermode who many years ago said, well, part of it is because or it's baffling to us because we all are what he calls pleromatists. <laughs> that's the Greek word for fullness. He doesn't mean we're all full of it, although maybe that's true, but it's the idea that we want fullness, or as we would say, we want completion. We don't want to go to a, a movie and walk out of the theater going, so what was that about? We might like some ambiguity, but in the end, we want some resolution. He, he also said, Carmody also said that in some ways we kind of imagine ourselves as living in the last days. Not literally like the end of the earth or the end of the world, but more like we're at the end of history in the sense that all of the history to this point is before us. It happened before us. And so we're at a place where we should have answers. We should have clarity. We should have pleroma or that fullness. And it explains our kind of unease with parables that leave us hanging. And we'll see that in just a minute. The most famous definition, by the way, I think it's the most famous, would be C.H. Dodd's definition. He was a, a British scholar who in the early 1960s, he, he penned this definition. And it, it cracks me up because it starts with the little phrase, at its simplest. But listen to it. At its simplest, the parable is a metaphor or simile drawn from nature or common life, arresting the hearer by its vividness or strangeness and leaving the mind in sufficient doubt about its precise application to tease it into active thought. 
<laughs> That's at its simplest. Well, if you break it down, it is fairly simple. He admits that it's a metaphor or a simile, and we already said that. The word itself means a kind of comparison. The fact that it's drawn from nature or common life, though, is key. When he says that, though, it's important to remember he means common life in the first century. So you can't ask 21st century questions. You have to ask, well, what did they think in the first century about life? And then, of course, the plot thickens because he says... Yeah, they're, they're normal, they're drawn from common life, but they arrest the hearer. There's something shocking in the parables. And they leave us in doubt, and they tease us into active thinking. That always reminds me of a parable, or a riddle, actually, that I heard some years ago. I think I read it in a book, and I've seen it in many places since. I call it the riddle of the two roads. It goes like this. So there's a fork in the road... And one of the roads leads to eternal life, and the other one to eternal damnation. Twin boys guard the roads, one at each. One of them always tells the truth, and one of them always lies. You can only ask one question of one boy, and you don't even know which boy you're asking it of, the liar or the truth teller. What question would you ask, and how would you then know which road to take? I'm pausing here because if you think I'm going to give you the answer, I'm not. And that's the way parables work. They, they leave you with, well, what, 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 what is the answer? Well, that's what you have to figure out. With Dodd's assistance, though, we're kind of given help. Two things. One, he says, they're normal. They follow first century customs, except there comes a twist. So what you have to do when you read any parable is say, okay, so what in this parable would have been normal in the first century and what would have shocked everyone listening. As a test case, I want you to listen to one of the, I think, central parables in the life of Jesus, not just because it occurs in so many places in the Gospels, but because, well, scholars consider it the parable about parables. You'll see what I mean in a second. So here's one from Mark's Gospel. All right. Mark's version of it. Listen, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell on the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and it sprang up quickly, since it had no depth of soil, and when the sun rose, it was scorched. Since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorn grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. Other seed fell into good soil and brought forth grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirty and sixty and a hundredfold. And he said, let anyone with ears to hear listen. Well, what does that mean? <laughs> Using God's normal and abnormal, what are we to make of the parable? Is it normal for this to happen? Is the harvest normal? Is the way he scatters seed normal? What, what is normal? And, and is it about the sower? Or is it about seed or is it about the soils what would be normal and what would not be normal that's how parables tease us into action or into reflection now it just start, turns out that in the gospels they not only tell the parable but a few verses later they give a solution 
kind of like crossword puzzles in airline magazines. So here's what you find a few verses later. The sower sows the word. These are the ones on the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. When they hear the word, they immediately receive it with joy. But they have no root and endure only for a while. Then when trouble and persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are those sown among the thorns. And it goes on and on and on, interpreting the meaning of the different soils. This is what I mentioned gave way to the early church fathers and for what roughly 1,900 years, allegory. Because the Gospels do it. Now, the question then is, well, did Jesus say, here's the interpretation, or do the Gospel writers add that? And the truth is, we don't know. That's the common refrain with the parables. We don't know. Klein Snodgrass, who's written one of the definitive works on parables in a book called Stories with Intent, he offers all kinds of possibilities for the sower parable alone. I think he has about eight or nine of them. Things like uh, the effectiveness of the proclaimed word, but with some resistance, or encouraging disciples despite their past failures. My favorite one, actually, is that this could be a parable about the experience of Jesus in his own preaching. And the reason I like that one is because, at least in Matthew's version, the parable that starts, a sower went out, is framed by a verse that says, Jesus went out. So maybe it's saying something about the ministry of Jesus. Again, we don't know. But here is where the plot thickens. In the Gospel of Mark, when you have the parable of the sower and you have those verses we read earlier about how he didn't speak to them except in parables, listen to these words. When he, that is Jesus, was alone, those who were around with him, along with the twelve, asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you, has been given the secret of the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything comes in parables, in order that they may indeed look, but not perceive, and may indeed listen, but not understand, so that they may not turn again and be forgiven. Wow, that is a fascinating passage. When, when the gospel writers... In this case, the gospel writer of Mark gets around to saying, here's why Jesus spoke in parables. He has several little things in here that intrigue me. To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. That's what he says to the disciples and the followers. Well, are they given the secret, as in the answer, or are they given a secret? Let me tell you a secret, and, a, and what they're given is a riddle. It seems like they're given some kind of insight as opposed to that little phrase, but for those outside. Well, well, who are those outside? Are we outside because we live 2,000 years later? Or is that only those outside of the church? What, what does that mean? And how about that little phrase, in order that? In Mark's gospel, the reason Mark says Jesus speaks in parables is so they won't get it. What? Why would you tell a parable so they don't get it? And then that phrase that follows is actually a quote from Isaiah. Well, is Isaiah saying something about Israel's hardness of heart or God's hardening their heart? 
the parables are shrouded in mystery. Here again is where the plot thickens. Matthew, when he writes his gospel, he has a copy of Mark. And he knows exactly what Mark has said in order that they won't get it. But listen to what Matthew says. He has these words from the mouth of Jesus. The reason I speak to them in parables is that seeing they do not perceive and hearing they do not listen, nor do they understand. And it goes on and he quotes Isaiah as well. But it's the little word that. In Greek, it could just as easily be translated because. It can't be translated in order that. Which means that where Mark says, you know, Jesus spoke in parables so they wouldn't get it, at least those on the outside. Matthew says, well, it's because they don't get it. That's a softening of the Gospel of Mark. As Barbara Brown Taylor says, you know, I'd rather worship in someone else's church than Mark's. It's a little bit harsh. So, I've been thinking about, or maybe it's one way of saying it, I've been puzzling the puzzles of Jesus. I'm intrigued not just with any one of the parables, but pulling back and asking the bigger question. Why does Jesus come to earth and speak in parable? Here's some possible answers that at least help us understand, maybe understand, the puzzle. Think about this. Israel knows God in the Old Testament really only in secret. Moses, for instance, gets to see God, well, the backside of God. To see the backside of God is not really to see God. It's, it's like there's still some mystery unsolved. What, what's God's face look like? And how about the names of God? They're riddles themselves. The, the name Yahweh, which Jews don't even pronounce, is a kind of, it's a puzzle in itself. <clears throat> some, some have even suggested that you could translate it is or the ising one. What's God's name? The ising one. The one who is and is and is to be. Or even the name Elohim, which is God. The, the Lord our God is one, and yet Elohim is plural. Israel is all about monotheism. Judaism, Christianity, all about monotheism. And yet God is plural, at least in the Hebrew. And even the Hebrew language itself is mysterious. I don't mean because maybe you can't read it, but because even if you can, almost every word in the Hebrew vocabulary is made up of three consonants, no vowels. And because of that, there are words where you can't even figure out what they mean. Did the person mean this or that? What, what, what do these three consonants make up? In addition, rabbis cherish, they absolutely adore, multiple interpretations and tensions. It doesn't bother a rabbi in the least to say that Rabbi so-and-so interpreted this passage to mean this, and Rabbi so-and-so said, no, it means that. They can live with that tension. It's not as easy for Christians in the West. We kind of want answers. There's also the notion of the difference between the Old Testament canon and the Jewish canon. So, the Old Testament canon that we have has the same books in it, but not in the same order. Um, the Jewish Old Testament, it, it ends in silence. The prophets who speak are in the middle, but the ends with 
with the notion of silence. Our Old Testament canon, we arranged it differently. We took their canon and we put the prophets at the end and we put the silence of Job and the questions of wisdom literature in the middle and we wanted the prophets to speak. Now, we probably did that mostly so that they could be forecasting or prophesying of a Messiah who was to come. But the difference between the Jewish canon is willing to let it end in silence and mystery. And Jesus, as a good Jew, he speaks in riddles and he lives with the mystery. And that intrigues me. I hope it intrigues you because next time we're going to look at two parables. If you have time between now and the next session of the podcast, here are the parables. Matthew 13, 33, and it's a very short parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed in with three measures of flour until all of it was leavened. And that's all there is. And then the other one is in Luke 18, beginning at verse 9. It's, it's usually called something, but we'll, we'll talk about why it's not a good thing to call a parable by a name. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. We'll look at both of those parables next time. But for now, let's look at the Ask a Scholar question that was submitted. It relates rather nicely to the ambiguity in the parables of Jesus, I think. The question concerns a word that is thrown around rather loosely these days, one that's, to be honest, often misunderstood. The word is postmodern, and the question is, what is this thing I hear called postmodernism? What does that mean? Am I postmodern? Well, it's a good question, and I do think it fits nicely with the ambiguity of Jesus' parables. The easiest way to explain it, and I'm going to make this really simple, is to begin with the modern period which began with the Enlightenment and even more so with scientific discoveries. The modern period focused on what could be known, and not just known, but verified, scientifically verified. Whatever superstitions had existed prior to this and what's known as the pre-modern period, well, that needed to be challenged. So if the period before the modern was pre-modern, then it's obvious where we get this name postmodern. So postmodern means it comes after this scientific kind of preoccupation. And this is where it gets tricky. With the rise of the modern period, its love of science, validation, etc., that doesn't mean the pre-modern period faded away. These things just get layered on top of each other. Because in the pre-modern period, people were very superstitious. Well, even today, people are still superstitious. So you got to remember that these things can kind of get layered on top of each other. The beginning of postmodernism, well, it's not like you can name one date, although in this case, some people have. Some people have suggested that it's as far back as November 1st, 1755, which, as it turns out, was All Saints Day, a major, major religious holiday. And it turns out that in Lisbon, Spain, on that day, while people were gathered in the churches, an earthquake struck, followed by a tsunami. The tragedy killed more than 10,000 people. Estimates are even as high as 100,000 people. And if Christians at worship could be killed, then one of the questions that surfaced was, maybe humanity wasn't making progress against all odds. Maybe we'd entered a new age. 
and later events, such as two world wars, would also contribute to the cynicism. And here, cynicism, it's a hallmark of postmodern thinking. If pre-moderns were superstitious and didn't really know things about the world, moderns consider themselves very well informed. But postmoderns, they say, well, you may be well informed, but I've got some questions. And their questions, they surface about misconceptions. So here's, for example, someone will tell you, and I've heard this said before, that postmodernism is best characterized as there's no such thing as ultimate truth in the world. Well, it's possible that some postmoderns might believe that. There's no such thing as ultimate truth. But that's not inherently true of postmodernism. Instead, I think it would be better to say that a questioning of those claiming to have certain knowledge would be the essence of postmodernism. Postmoderns, they thought, they, they, here's how I'd put it. Okay, I'll be a postmodern. Arms folded across the chest, and I'll say to you, okay, maybe, maybe there's ultimate truth. But who has access to it? Do you? How, how do you have access to it? Oh, the Bible says? Yeah, well, how do we know that can be trusted? Postmoderns have a skepticism about certainty of knowledge. That's why I think it fits well with the parables. If Jesus comes as the Son of God and is going to tell us about God, and he does so with riddles and ambiguity and multiple understandings, maybe that has appeal to a generation of skeptics and cynics. The followers of Jesus aren't given certainty, but riddles. And that's something to think about. If you have a question about the Bible or theology or religion, spirituality, send me an email. My email address is mikeg at ccckc.org. That's mikeg at 4ckc.org. Thanks for joining us, and until next time, we'll see you on Heart and Mind. <music>